0: everyone, I'm Madden.
1: And I'm Zoe.
0: And this is the Unnamed Doe podcast. On today's episode, I'm going to tell you the story of a Jane Doe that was identified after more than 45 years. This is the story of Margaret Federoff. <laughs> On September 12th, 1976, at 1020 a.m., A motorist was passing through the Woodlawn section of Baltimore, Maryland. As the motorist passed the 5600 block of Dogwood Road, near the back gate of Lorraine Park Cemetery, they discovered the body of a young woman just 18 feet from the gates to the cemetery.
1: Was she inside the cemetery or outside the cemetery gates?
0: I think she was outside of the cemetery gates. Okay. Now retired Lieutenant Rick Heaps of the Baltimore County Police Department was the first person to arrive on the scene. He recalled arriving to the crime scene. Quote, when we arrived on the scene, we found the woman wrapped in a sheet. Her hands were tied behind her back in perfect knots with some type of medical bandage, end quote. Hmm, I don't like that. I'm not sure what he means by perfect knots, but I assume, I don't know. I don't know what I assume.
1: It could be like perfectly symmetrical bows
0: or... Well, we'll see square knots used later in the case, so I wonder if he meant square knots.
1: That makes sense.
0: The victim had been bound and violently sexually assaulted before her murder.
1: Do we know how long she had been there before being found?
0: The Jane Doe had been murdered less than 24 hours prior, and it was likely that she was murdered somewhere else and dumped at the location where she was found by the motorist. So what was left at the scene? There were actually several things left at the scene, but we're going to start with what was found on the victim's body. The woman's head was wrapped in three different cloths. That's a lot of cloths. It is. The first cloth was a yellow bag that was originally a 25 pound sack of lawn seed. Printed on the sack was, quote, Farm Bureau Association grass seed, Lexington, Mass, end quote. That
1: seems like a good lead. That sounds like something that only farmers could get potentially, and from the Farm Bureau Association specifically, and we have a town and a location.
0: Police also thought that this was a good lead, and they were able to dig up a lot of information about the grass seed sack. The bag was manufactured at the Bemis Bag Company, located in Buffalo, New York, and it was only sold in five Massachusetts locations.
1: Only five locations? Yes. Wow, yeah, that's not a lot.
0: The five locations that the bags were sold at were 158 Lexington Street in Waltham, Stafford Street in Rochdale, 307 Western Ave in Lowell, 3 Hollis Street in South Weymouth, and East Deerfield Front Yards in Greenfield, and all of those were in Massachusetts. Additionally, the bag was discontinued in 1974, two years before the Jane Doe was murdered.
1: This seems like a really solid lead to have right off the bat. Yeah. So, that's the first cloth. What about the other cloths?
0: The second cloth wrapped around Jane Doe's head was a dark blue and white bandana with a paisley print. And the third cloth was another bandana, except this one was orange and white. And really disturbingly, this bandana had holes cut in it for the eyes and nose.
1: Ew, that's weird. Mm Mm-hmm. So this was
0: the one that was closest to her skin or the outside layer? That's what I'm not sure. My source is listed as the third cloth, but I don't know if that means it's third on the outside or if it's closest to her face. I just find it kind of weird that one of the cloths and only one of them had eye holes cut in it when the other two were still on her head. So how do you see through the eye holes if you've got two other cloths on your head?
1: Yeah, it's really strange. Is it a unique M.O.? I don't know. Okay. Weird. Disturbing. Very. Gross.
0: Yes. All three of these cloths were found tied behind the victim's neck in a square knot.
1: And a square knot, in case you don't know, is also called a reef knot, and it is a relatively simple knot used by a lot of people because it's easy to learn and it's a really strong knot. And I think it's the first one that Boy Scouts learn.
0: That's exactly right. Zoe, I've sent you pictures of the cloths found around the victim's head so that you can take a look for yourself. Can you describe them to us? Or since I gave us a pretty brief description, you can just tell the listeners anything that strikes you about the photos.
1: The Farm Bureau one has a lot more information on it than I thought it was going to have. It looks like it was a 25 pound sack of lawn seed, I guess. So it's a big sack and it was just wrapped around her head. Weird. I nodded.
0: Listeners, I nodded. And you can't (laughs) see that. It was wrapped around her head.
1: It's very disturbing seeing the eye holes.
0: Yes, it is. I'm just,
1: I'm going to go past that. It's it's really creepy. It's disturbing. And they're bigger than they should be. They're also, like, closer together. So these bandanas are really distinct. Were police able to get any leads based off the seat sack, besides what you already told me? Or anything from the bandanas?
0: Yes. The information from the grass seed sack led police to theorize that the Jane Doe or her murderer may have been from, spent time in, or had friends or family in Massachusetts.
1: Okay, so they think she could have been from, had family in, somehow connected to Massachusetts, but she was found in Maryland, right?
0: Yes, but also they theorized that maybe her murderer was from Massachusetts.
1: That is still a really long ways away. It Maryland is. is a couple states in between, which I get that it's in like the New England area and those states are small, but that's still several states.
0: Yes, but you are right in saying that it's far. And I, I did say they're suspecting maybe the murder could be from Massachusetts, but at this point they really think that Jane Doe is also from Massachusetts.
1: That's really interesting. That's a really far way to go to dispose of a body. Speaking of her body, was there anything else found on her body?
0: The Jane Doe was found wearing a white or beige pullover short sleeve top, beige and yellow Levi's corduroy pants, a white bra, striped brown, gray, and beige knee socks, and a light brown leather shoe with a soft rubber composition sole and twine used as laces was also found near her.
1: And just a singular shoe?
0: Yes, just the one. From what I can tell, all of the clothes were found on her body, but the shoe was found off of her body nearby. She was also wearing a rawhide string necklace with a small round turquoise blue bead attached. I've given you a picture of the socks, which were the only articles of clothing pictured on the Doe Network, and I've also given you pictures of the shoe found at the scene and the necklace Jane Doe was wearing.
1: So the socks are those big thick stripe patterns, and you said it was a bunch of different colors. And it's only a black and white photo, but I can tell that there's a lot of distinct layers. And the shoe, it looks like a jazz dance shoe, but it's got laces, which makes it not a dance shoe. But it's still that kind of dancer style, flat shoe type thing. And the laces are weird because it's like the twine laces. And the necklace... That's definitely not what I was expecting when you were describing that. It is just a, it's raw rawhide, but it looks like a little leather strap with just a small turquoise bead on it. It looks like those beads that you make friendship bracelets with, but turquoise. So that's not exactly what I was expecting when you said that, but it's very simple. Like when I hear turquoise, I think something elaborate and grand, but this is very simple and understated.
0: Yeah, I think you did really good.
1: Was there anything else at the scene besides clothing and the cloths you mentioned earlier?
0: Yes, there was. Police located two keys in Jane Doe's right front pocket. Both keys were found on a safety pin. Was there anything unique about the keys?
1: That's insane. Like, Were they able to match it to any doors or find out where it was
0: made? Anything like that? Yeah, so investigators were able to determine that one of the keys had been manufactured in Fitchburg, Massachusetts, and it had DB09212 stamped on it. Additionally, investigators determined that one of the keys was likely used for a night latch, and one appeared to be a house key. What's a night latch? I googled that. It's like an extra lock, kind of like a deadbolt oh okay 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 gotcha gotcha i've just never heard it referred to as a night latch
1: but okay i got it
0: now from what i could tell i could totally be wrong but that's that's what it looked like okay that makes sense yeah overall there was a lot of physical evidence left behind at the scene and investigators were able to glean a lot of information about this jane doe but they were able to learn even more once they completed an autopsy As I told you earlier, it was determined that Jane Doe had been dead for around 24 hours or less before being dumped near the cemetery. Because the time of death was so soon before her discovery, she still had a recognizable face. I want to pause and give a quick warning here because her postmortem photos are out there and you may see them if you dig deep into this case, so be cautious while googling. After the autopsy, it was revealed that her cause of death was homicide by strangulation. Jane Doe was determined to be 15 to 30 years old. Whoa, that's a huge age range. That is a huge age range.
1: Especially for somebody that is recognizable. That is a huge age range. Mm -hmm. We've talked a lot about age estimations. And we've talked about how they're really tricky in skeletal remains because you don't have everything available to you. But this is crazy. (laughs) If it was like 20 to 40 there's a lot of development that happens between 15 and 20. Like that
0: that's weird to me. They also weren't able to determine her race. They thought she was possibly white or Hispanic. She had a dark olive complexion, but they weren't able to pin down any sort of ancestry. Okay, I can kind of understand that. The Jane Doe was five six to 5'8, 149 to 159 pounds, and she had brown shoulder length wavy hair, brown eyes, and pierced ears. She also had a scar on her left thigh, at least according to the Doe Network, but other sources do say that the scar was on her right thigh, so I'm not sure what the correct information is. She also had a tattoo on her right arm just below her shoulder, and all the sources say that it was really crudely done and almost definitely homemade. Was it a permanent tattoo? It was a permanent tattoo, but it had not been done by a professional.
1: Okay, gotcha.
0: The tattoo appeared to be two letters, and there's a lot of debate about which letters it was, so I'm going to list you all the possible combinations that they thought these letters could be. JP, JS, JD, JB, SP, SS, SD, or SB. I don't understand how they're getting
1: S and J's confused.
0: I'm not sure either. I can see how it'd be really easy to confuse a P, a D, and a B. Yeah. But to go from a J to an S feels a little odd to me. Yeah. That's weird. That's a lot
1: of different combinations, and that doesn't seem very useful.
0: I can't imagine how it would be when you have so many combinations. Those could stand for anything.
1: And also, if it appeared to be done at home, then nobody would have to know that it was there. She was on the younger age and wanted a tattoo of her boyfriend's initials and her parents wouldn't let her. She could have done this at home. This is something that I feel like somebody would do if they're trying to hide it from people, to do an at-home tattoo.
0: Right, which is then no one's going to identify her based on this tattoo because no one knows she has it.
1: Exactly. It's not like you can go to a tattoo place and be like, here's a picture of a tattoo. Did anybody in your parlor do this tattoo?
0: And also, if it was so crudely done that they can't even tell what the letters were, that might not even be what it meant to say. Exactly. Like she could have been trying to draw something else or whoever did the tattoo on her could have been trying to draw something else and it just came out a little wonky. So moving on from the tattoo, she also had O positive blood type. This is all pretty standard information to uncover during an autopsy and a physical examination. However, investigators found something that they did not expect to see.
1: What did they find?
0: A large amount of sedatives were found in the victim's system, but these weren't just any sedatives. The drugs found in her system were chlorpromazine, which is an antipsychotic medication used to treat schizophrenia. According to authorities, it can also be used as a tranquilizer. Whoa, that's some strong stuff. Mm -hmm. Based on the type of sedatives found in the woman's system, police theorized that the killer or the Jane Doe could have had links to a mental institution. This theory was also taken really seriously because because the sheet found wrapped around the victim was consistent with those provided at inpatient institutions. That's crazy.
1: I feel like this is a lot of information that they have.
0: Yeah, and from what I can tell, after the Doe was identified, it seems like police really leaned into the theory that the murderer may have been linked to the mental institution. Gotcha. Because I don't think that our Jane Doe had any known links to the mental institution She didn't have a history with chlorpromazine, and I don't think she had a history with schizophrenia either. Police's working theory right now is that the killer drugged her with these drugs as a sedative or a tranquilizer.
1: That's gross. So we have a lot of information in this case. What did investigators do? This was probably pretty fast, right? To solve or
0: find the identity of the doe. Yeah, you would think... Detectives began investigating the case by pounding the pavement and talking to anyone that was willing. The victim had been found near a relatively busy road and it had been Sunday morning. What time in the morning on Sunday? Ten twenty is when she was found.
1: Whoa was this like a relatively busy area? It was. And it took until ten twenty for her to be noticed?
0: Yes and she was noticed by a car passing by if you remember. That's weird that it took so long. Well, she had likely died less than twenty four hours before. Right. And remember they think she was dumped there. So she could have been dumped any time before ten twenty. Okay, that yeah, yeah, yeah. So she wasn't necessarily there for a long time. Yeah, that makes sense. Many people used that road to drive to church and police were sure that someone had seen something out of the ordinary. Police interviewed everyone who lived on the road, and also anyone they could find that had taken the road to church that morning. Their hunch proved to be right, because it wouldn't take long before they got a witness tip. A woman and her young son came forward and told police that they had used that road to drive to church that morning. On their way to church, they noticed what they described as a shiny blue van with panel doors parked on the side of the road that morning around 9.20 a.m., just an hour before Jane Doe was found. Some sources I saw say that it was a white panel van, but most say blue, so that's what we'll be going with. The young son who came forward with his mother loved cars, and he told his mom that the van they'd seen parked on the side of the road was a Ford Ecoline van. Zoe, here's a picture of a Ford Line van from the 1970s.
1: Honestly, it just looks like a very typical van. It doesn't look like the vans that you see vloggers living
0: in. No, it looks like the most stereotypical murder van.
1: Yeah. That has ever existed. That's what it looks like.
0: That's like the vans they tell little kids not to take candy from.
1: It's that very boxy van, not the round van. The boxier the van, the sketchier it is, in my opinion. And this is pretty boxy. And there's like only the front two windows, so you can hide a lot in that van.
0: I also think it's really important here to keep in mind what I just said, which is that witnesses saw this van around 9.20 on the morning of September 12th and the Jane Doe was discovered only an hour later at 10:20 that same day. So this is a really small window.
1: So did anything come out of this van tip?
0: Yes and no. Police do think that it was most likely involved in the crime, but they weren't able to ever track it down. As far as the investigation goes, the police were, I'm sure, really optimistic when they started this case because of all the evidence at the scene and the information from the witness statements. But in what seemed to be a recurring pattern in this case, the witness statement led to nothing except a dead end. That's so crazy because this is so much evidence.
1: I feel like Out of all the cases we've covered so far, this is the case that has the most evidence. And I'm just, I'm shocked.
0: Yeah, but every piece of evidence is leading them nowhere. It's crazy. Eventually, the woman was nicknamed the Woodlawn Jane Doe after the county where she was originally found. Police were following up on any and all cases that seemed even a little similar, including ones from states as far away as Illinois and California. Wow. They were looking all over
1: the country. They were
0: really trying to figure out what happened here. They were fighting hard for this case and they just kept hitting wall after wall.
1: Did they ever think that this was something to do with organized crime
0: or anything like that? Not that I know of. It's possible, but I didn't see that tossed out anywhere. Okay. After this like I said, the investigation came to a standstill. Police attempted to locate the identity of the woman using dental records, fingerprints, and DNA, but they got no matches. People hadn't forgotten about the woman. There was just no new information as the years continued to pass, and there were no new breaks in the case.
1: Unfortunately, that's what happens a lot of times in these unidentified cases, and it's so frustrating, and it's, it's horrible.
0: Yeah, it is. This case would sit stagnant and unmoving until 2006. This was when the next big push to solve this case happened.
1: What happened in 2006?
0: In 2006, detectives requested that more evidence in the Woodlawn Jane Doe case be tested. They sent a sample away for testing, and they were actually able to detect semen.
1: Wait, what?
0: Yes, they were able to detect semen, which I don't think they knew they had before this year, before 2006. That's huge news. That's huge evidence. Yes, it is. Because even if you don't know who Jane Doe is, you could possibly get to her murderer.
1: And if you can get to the murderer, that's one step closer to possibly finding the identity.
0: Unfortunately, there weren't any matches to the sample, and they also weren't able to get DNA out of it. (sighs) 2006 was also when Nick Mick offered their assistance to the police to help spread the word about her case.
1: So did they think that she was on the younger end of the age range? I know we talked about her being fifteen to thirty, but if Nick Mick was trying to reach out and offer their assistance, was it believed that she was under eighteen or twenty one?
0: Most likely. I don't really think many people thought she was on the older range, but they couldn't rule it out. Okay, gotcha. Nick Mick would end up doing updated forensic art for the Woodlawn Jane Doe in twenty sixteen. But for now, it seems like they're just helping with tips and evidence, not facial reconstructions for the case quite yet. So Nick McC is helping with the investigation, but not with facial reconstructions yet.
1: I think that's important to bring up because Nick NCMEC doesn't just do facial reconstructions. They do a lot more. Mm-hmm. I feel like when we've talked about them, we just highlight the facial reconstructions, but they do a lot more too. They do. They are
0: literally the posters of missing children that you see in Walmart. And they help with testing. They help spreading publicity. They do a lot of things.
1: They really
0: do. They also take care of the families of missing people and try to help them cope with everything that's happening. Right. They're a really great organization. Yes. There are several reconstructions done of this Jane Doe that weren't related to Nick NCMEC and they were done by an artist named Ken Ling. I have these for you to look at, and there are quite a few images.
1: So these reconstructions and artwork, they all look very different. The eyebrows are different in every single one of them. The hairstyle is different in every single one of them. The nose is different in every single one of them. The lips look pretty similar. Like... Average size to maybe a little larger than normal lips. She has a widow's peak in every single reconstruction.
0: And that was something that was noted by investigators was that there was a widow's peak present.
1: But (sighs) there's no consistency. There's just dark hair, dark eyes. That's about it. There's no consistency.
0: Yeah. Also, at some point in the investigation, although I wasn't able to pinpoint exactly when, there was also a facial regression image created for this Jane Doe. A facial regression showed what she may have looked like when she was younger, and the hope was that someone may recognize it, but nothing ended up coming of that. Although I do have it here for you to look at, Zoe.
1: So I think the idea of facial regressions is very interesting, and it's something that I've always thought we should do in more cases, but I don't think this was very useful. She doesn't look lifelike or very human in it. It almost looks like a character in a video game, like a fairy video game. and it was very descriptive, and that's probably just how my mind. Works, but the hair is different, the nose is different, everything is just different. There's no consistency in any of these reconstructions or renderings or artworks. There's no consistency. Even the side profile and the front profile of this regression look different to me.
0: I agree 100%. Now, moving on from the pictures, we're still in the year 2006. It's at this point that investigators really start honing in on their Massachusetts lead because they think that's where the victim may have been from since the key found in her pocket was manufactured in Massachusetts and the seed sack was also distributed in Massachusetts. But other than the semen sample being tested and the hunch about Massachusetts, the case went cold yet again.
1: That was really unfortunate.
0: The next time the case received a lot of attention was in 2012, when an episode about the case aired on America's Most Wanted. But yet again, nothing in the case progressed. Then, three years later in 2015, with the help of Nick NCMEC, police decided to try a new technique, one that isn't done in the United States very often. They decided to try forensic pollen analysis. Between April 9th and April 20th, 2015, pollen analysis was conducted on the Woodlawn Jane Doe. The pollen testing was done by a scientist named Andrew Lawrence, who worked with the U.S. Customs and Border Patrol. Lawrence was also one of only about five forensic pollen analysts in the entire world, at least as of 2016, when the article detailing the analysis was published in the Baltimore Sun. When Lawrence performed the pollen analysis, he found a possible connection to the Arnold Arboretum in Boston, Massachusetts, which further cemented the police's idea that the dome must have been from Massachusetts. This pollen that they're testing, Mm -hmm.
1: where did they get it from?
0: I'm actually about to tell you that. I was curious, too, about the process of testing pollen under circumstances like this, And luckily, there were sources available that described exactly how Lawrence went about doing it. He vacuumed Jane Doe's clothing to draw the pollen grains out for testing, and then it was a big, long scientific process that I don't have time to fully get into. But ultimately, he found a combination of cedar and mountain hemlock pollen on her clothes. Pollen sticks to people's clothing, and since no two locations have an identical pollen signature, it can help reveal where the victim may have been prior to their death. That's really, really Fascinating. Mm <laughs> hmm, isn't it? So, if you remember, I said that Lawrence found a blend of cedar and mountain hemlock pollen on the woman's clothes and eventually determined that she had likely visited the Arnold Arboretum in Boston. How long does pollen
1: stay on your clothes? Like, how long ago would she have been at this location prior to her death?
0: Pollen sticks to your clothes for a crazy long amount of time. It's basically indestructible. Interesting. Because we know this is being tested in 2015. So, it's still on her clothes from when she was found in 1976. This doesn't tell us how... How recent it was.
1: Right. It doesn't work like isotopes, kind of. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So we can't get a date signature, but we can get a location signature. Which is still incredibly useful and helpful. Yes. Cedar is native to the Middle East, parts of North Africa, and the island of Cyprus. It was imported to the United States in the 1800s to be used as lumber, and now it's a common tree to find on the East Coast. However, mountain hemlock is native to the western parts of the United States, and it's only found on the East Coast in parks, arboretums, and botanical gardens because it's not naturally occurring in the eastern United States. Since the Jane Doe had a combination of both pollens, Lawrence had to find locations where both plants were present. Cedar and mountain hemlock are only found together in two places, the New York Botanical Garden and the Arnold Arboretum, which is located between the neighborhoods of Jamaica Plain and Roslindale in Boston. Here's a little fun fact for you, as well as a little crossover from a previous episode of ours. According to Detective John Cronin, who you may remember from our episode about the vacant lot homicides. The Arnold Arboretum has had mountain hemlock since about 1967. So what's he doing in this story? In an interesting coincidence, when Baltimore detectives started theorizing that Jane Doe may have spent time in Boston, it was Detective Cronin who assisted them since he worked for the Boston Police Department. Out here doing the work for the unidentified, he really is. Both Cronin and Jacoby, who was the cold case homicide detective working the Woodlawn Jane Doe case, visited the Arnold Arboretum together to interview the curator and the employees to see if they might have had any memories that could be useful. But again, detectives came up empty-handed. Police also searched through so many yearbooks from Boston, looking for anyone who had gone missing or resembled the Jane Doe, but they were unsuccessful there as well. This might be where their search into forensic pollen analysis ended, but it was where mine had just begun. I went down such a rabbit hole to learn everything I possibly could about forensic pollen analysis, and now I'm going to share it with you. Forensic pollen analysis is also known as forensic palynology. It's a sub-discipline of palynology, which is the study of pollen grains, spores, fungi, and way more stuff that we don't have time to get into today. But somebody does that work, because it couldn't be me. Yeah. Well, apparently only five people in the world do that work, (laughs) but I digress. Forensic palynology isn't widely used in the United States, but it can be really useful. It was pioneered in Austria in the 1950s, and it's used routinely in places like the United Kingdom, Australia, and New Zealand. Here's how it works. Like I told you earlier, every single place has a different pollen signature. This produces a different combination of pollen spores that cling to a person or their clothing. This unique combination of pollen can then indicate where a person or object has spent time. It can also be an indication of a crime timeline because it can show what season the pollen was picked up during since plants only bloom during specific parts of the year. New Zealand, which has a very high demand for forensic polynology has used pollen as evidence in a huge variety of crimes, from the very nonviolent to the very violent. Pollen analysis has also been used to analyze victims found in Bosnian mass graves. It's been used to locate a crime scene and to differentiate between primary and secondary crime scenes, and so much more.
1: So if this is used in a lot of places that are very similar culturally to the United States, why aren't we using it here more?
0: I'm not sure about that. I think it probably just hasn't caught on And because there's such a lack of forensic palynologists, it probably isn't the most feasible testing to do every time. Okay, that makes sense. Pollen is really useful because it's microscopic, so it's not noticeable to the human eye. And according to my sources, it's basically indestructible, like I said earlier. Which is probably why Lawrence was able to test the pollen from Jane Doe's clothes, even though so many years had passed. However, by far the biggest limitation facing the field is the lack of forensic palynologists. Very few trained palynologists go into the field, and it requires a lot of training and school. Just to give you a sense of what becoming a forensic palynologist requires, you have to have a PhD with a background in forensic science, botany, ecology, geography, and climatology. That's a lot. Yes, it is. You also have to have been trained in the field of quaternary science, and you need a lot of experience before you can assist on cases but there are no training schools for forensic palynology in the United States. When a forensic palynologist does assist on a case, though, there is usually only one of them handling the case. It is common for the analyst to visit the crime scene to study the vegetation, and in fact, it's actually necessary for forensic palynologists to arrive at the scene of the crime before anyone like CSI gets to the crime scene. That way, the plants and evidence at the scene remain undisturbed. Now, in case you're questioning if forensic palynology actually works, I have some case examples for you. One of the earliest cases where forensic pollen analysis was used was in Austria in 1959. A man was missing, and although he had never been recovered, he was presumed to have been murdered. There was a suspect in the case, and police arrested him. But without a body or a confession, they didn't have much of a case against him. But they did have enough circumstantial evidence to search through his belongings. In the man's belongings, they found a pair of muddy boots. Mud was taken from the boots and analyzed and spruce, willow, and alder pollen was found, as well as fossilized hickory pollen grains, which went extinct a really long time ago. There was only one area nearby that had that exact combination of living and fossilized plants. When the police presented this information to the suspect, he confessed to everything and led the police to the body, which was within the region that the pollen had indicated. The last case example I'm going to share with you is actually a case from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm going to stop here and give you all a content warning. The case I'm about to discuss involves the death of a child. No graphic details are discussed, but it could still be triggering. And if this is the case, I recommend skipping this part and rejoining us later in the episode.
1: If you'd still like to listen, but you want to skip this section, you can jump to about 34 minutes and 15 seconds to rejoin us.
0: With that said, let's get into the case. On June 25th, 2015, a child's body was found in a plastic bag on the shore of Deer Island in Boston Harbor in Boston, Massachusetts. A woman had been walking her dog when it stopped to sniff the bags, and that was when she discovered the remains. The child was determined to be a little girl, and she was nicknamed Deer Island Jane Doe, or also Baby Doe. It was clear that the child had been murdered, although an autopsy couldn't confirm an exact cause of death. Baby Doe's case immediately garnered national attention.
1: At least she got publicity and people were caring about her.
0: That's something we don't see in these cases very often. That's very true. Nick McMahon made a facial reconstruction and her case blew up nationwide. An estimated 56 million people viewed reports on the case, half of which were in the first week alone. But even with all of this publicity, no one came forward to claim the remains. Police tried everything possible, including pollen testing that indicated that Baby Doe had spent time in Boston before her death. This was important at the time because she was found on an island, and police weren't sure if she had been placed there by a local or if her body had washed ashore from somewhere far away. Baby Doe was eventually identified as Bella Bond. Bella was two years old, on the cusp of turning three, when her body was discovered. Bella was eventually identified by a tip that was submitted to police. A neighbor who lived near Bella noticed that he hadn't seen her in a while, and he confronted Bella's mom, who was named Rochelle. Rochelle told him that Bella had been taken away by CPS, but this, of course, was not true. The neighbor informed his sister of his suspicions, and his sister ended up calling the police to report a tip. A search was executed at the Bonds' home in Dorchester, Massachusetts, and Rochelle and her boyfriend were both arrested and Bella was identified as the Dear Island Jane Doe, or Baby Doe. I won't get into the whole trial process of these two horrible people, but it essentially turned into a massive mess of finger pointing and he said, she said. Both Rochelle and her boyfriend spent the entire trial pointing the finger at the other person and saying that the other person was responsible for Bella's death, not them.
1: That doesn't help anybody if you just point the finger.
0: No, and no one was denying that one of the two of them killed this little girl, but neither of them would own up to it and were just placing all of the blame on the other person.
1: It's so disgusting.
0: In the end, Rochelle Bond was charged with being an accessory after the fact, and that was because she took a plea deal. Mm. Michael McCarthy, Rochelle's boyfriend, was charged with murder in the second degree and was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole. I'm sorry, with? I don't know how you get be paroled if you are responsible for a crime like this, but yes he has the possibility of parole. So even though the pollen testing may not have been what ultimately identified Bella, it was useful in determining where she might have been from, sort of like isotope testing. But anyway, to get back to the investigation of our Woodlawn Jane Doe, the pollen testing was in 2015, And now that the ball was rolling again on this case, it seemed to keep gaining momentum. In 2016, authorities announced a potential identity for the victim. They said that the Woodlawn Jane Doe may be a girl who went by the name Jasmine or Jazzy that had immigrated from either Puerto Rico or Colombia with her family to Massachusetts. What? Where is this information coming from? This information is coming from a tip that police received back in 2015. Police went on to say that she may have lived on Forbes Street in Jamaica Plain, Boston, Massachusetts. This piece of information specifically made a lot of sense to them at the time. The Arnold Arboretum was right next to Jamaica Plain, and the tattoo on her arm may have said JP, which they thought could stand for Jamaica Plain. Those factors, with all of the other signs pointing to Massachusetts, made the police believe that this was a very strong lead.
1: I can see where they're going with this.
0: Additionally, the doe may have had relatives by the name Blanca, Tito, and Santana, according to a NCMEC article published at the time, and she also may have attended a Catholic school in the area.
1: Where in the world did they get that information from?
0: I'm assuming still from the tip, but it seems really weirdly specific
1: yeah there's family members names where she went to school i guess it's one thing to have a tip about where the person might have lived but to know that information and not have their name
0: well they thought she was named jasmine or jazzy oh
1: right right right
0: now all of this seemed really promising because it's a lot of information but yet again it didn't take long for the investigation to stall out This time, it was because the police couldn't find any family that matched this description, so no one could confirm if this Doe was who they were suspecting. Investigators worked with the Archdiocese of Boston over the holidays to get flyers into churches and hopefully jog someone's memory that might have recognized the reconstruction of Jane Doe. They also canvassed the entire Jamaica Plain neighborhood and handed out flyers everywhere they could. But again, they came up empty-handed. That same year, in 2016, Nick NICMIC published a new facial reconstruction that I mentioned earlier, and the reason they published this is because it was the 40-year anniversary of the doe being found. Zoe, I have it for you here.
1: Okay, so this reconstruction looks a lot like the other ones. I feel like with the NICMIC renderings, we usually see more personality in the facial features, and that's not really here this time, which I guess is a good thing because that can be very misleading. When looking at reconstructions, if you put a facial expression on somebody that their family or friends or someone who knew them doesn't recognize, so maybe that's why they made this choice. Her hair is all pulled to one side, which is interesting. Again, this looks very different than the other reconstructions you showed me. There just seems like there's a lot of variation in what she looks like, and really don't know why she still has that dark complexion the dark hair dark eyebrows dark eyes but i just feel like nothing else really looks anywhere similar to the other ones we've talked about
0: yeah and we were talking a minute ago and i actually pulled up the autopsy photo so we could look at it next to the reconstruction and i don't think it looks anything like the autopsy photo So, I'm not exactly sure how they got to this reconstruction, but this would be the last reconstruction that was published in relation to this case. 2016 was also the year that police revealed the tip they'd received about the panel van being seen in the area.
1: Oh, so they didn't know that back then? They only
0: found that out in 2016? No, the police knew about it. They didn't reveal it to the public until 2016. Okay, gotcha. So, I told you about it back in the timeline of when they knew, but 2016 is when we as the public found out. Okay. So in 2016, Baltimore County Police Corporal John Watcher said, quote, we believe that she was drugged into the woods, maybe from a van that had been seen in the area, end quote. And like I said, that was the first the public was hearing about this. It was also around this time that police were doing a big push to get tips. Detective Jacoby said, quote, we'll listen to anything. Don't assume that we know. End quote.
1: I'm really glad the detective made this point because a lot of people just assume that police have information and they don't give tips that would be very beneficial. It's kind of like the whole bystander effect. They assume somebody else told them or that they already know that and I think detectives would rather you give the information if you have it. It's really awesome that he said that because anything can be important in an investigation.
0: Asking for tips was essentially the police's last hope at this point. Since so far, their testing had failed, all their leads had ran into dead ends, someone coming forward was one of their last options, unless they could find a missing person to match the Jane Doe to. One missing person that police considered as a possibility was Maria Mia Onjeres. Mia was 14 when she vanished, and she is still missing to this day, making her one of Connecticut's oldest missing person cases listed on NamUs. On February 12th, 1976, Mia left her home on bike sometime in the afternoon. We know it was sometime after 2.30ish because Mia's father left for work at 2.25 and he saw her as he was leaving. She had a vocal lesson later that afternoon, and then after vocal lessons, she was supposed to babysit for a neighbor. Mia never showed up for either event. There were a few reported sightings of Mia at various fast food restaurants in the area, and there was also a sighting of her that police were able to follow up on, but it turned out not to be Mia and was in fact a different teenage girl. Mia's blue bike was found in front of her friend's house on St. Mary's Lane, which was about a half mile from where she had left her home. However, the friend who lived in the house where the bike was found said that she never saw Mia, and there was also no sign of Mia anywhere in the area. When Mia left her home that day, she was wearing a peach-colored sweater, white canvas pants, brown shoes, and a green Norwalk High School jacket with Mia and the number 79 written on it. Mia had brown hair and blue eyes, and according to her family, her behavior seemed normal around the time of her disappearance, but she had threatened to run away previously. On that occasion, her father had managed to talk her out of running away, but when she left for the last time, she took a little money, a pair of pajamas, a pair of jeans, and several sweaters. The authorities speculated that Mia may have run away initially to prove a point, but likely ran into some sort of foul play after getting mixed in with the wrong people. Mia's parents have since both passed away, but as of 2022, her brother and sister remain hopeful that Mia is out there somewhere alive. I have some pictures of Mia for you to look at. We obviously know that Mia isn't the Woodlawn Jane Doe, but I still wanted to share her story because she is missing and it's important to get her story out there. However, I barely scratched the surface, so if you want to hear more about her case, let us know.
1: Okay, compared to the reconstructions we have, which are all very different, I can see why police thought she could potentially be Jane Doe, but I just don't see it. I mean, I've established that there's a lot of variation in the reconstructions, but Mia's nose is a lot different. Her eyes. Ultimately, I could see why investigators thought Jane Doe could be Mia, but
0: I just don't see it a whole lot. I think probably investigators were looking more at the circumstances of Mia's disappearance less than the physical resemblance, because they don't really physically resemble each other except for dark hair and brown eyes, so that would be my best guess. Now, ultimately, like I said, we know that the woodlawn Jane Doe was not Mia, nor was she Jasmine or Jazzy. In February 2021, Nick Mick along with Bode Technology performed additional DNA testing on the remains. Bode was able to extract DNA from the remaining DNA evidence even though it was degraded, and then they sent the sample to Othram for genetic genealogy testing. Othram used genome sequencing to make a genealogical profile that was then returned to bow technology. Genealogists there worked to produce leads, which ultimately resulted in the successful identification of the Woodlawn Jane Doe. Her name was Margaret Federoff. She went missing in late summer of 1975, the year before she was murdered. She was just 16 at the time of her death.
1: She disappeared a year before she was murdered? Mm -hmm. Oh, God.
0: And Zoe, I've got a few pictures for you. One of them is used a lot with her case. It's of her when she's older, I assume around the time she disappeared. And then I also gave you a couple pictures of when she was a younger kid, just because I think it's really important to see what she was like in life.
1: The first thing that strikes me is that the reconstructions do not look anything like her. I see no resemblance. The most recent pictures, I'm assuming, and the one when she looks like she was maybe a preteen... Those look similar. You can see her aging up in that one. The younger one is hard to see, but I can see the progression of how she aged. Her skin tone looks a lot paler than I was expecting based off of the physical description.
0: Yeah, I think that's because they had a really hard time figuring out her ancestry And I think they were leaning towards more that she might be Hispanic, so they were making her have a little bit of a darker skin tone, when I think here she has a lighter skin tone and may have been Caucasian. Yeah. I just really wanted you to look at these pictures, because especially looking at the pictures where she was a kid, it just brings humanity to the case, and you can tell how young she really was.
1: It reminds us that she's more than just a story we're telling that she was a person.
0: Yeah, I mean, she was 15 when she ran away, and she was 16 when she was brutally murdered. That's a kid.
1: Yeah, it's heartbreaking.
0: And it's really easy to forget that when we're telling these stories. And so it's good to see these pictures of her and be reminded that this was a child with a life and a family and dreams and hopes, and she did not deserve to have her life taken in the way that it was. Yeah. According to her family, Margaret was described as a, quote, habitual runaway, end quote. Because of this, it seems like police might not have taken her case nearly as seriously as they should have. According to The Grateful Doe, which is a subreddit dedicated to unidentified doe cases, The police in Margaret's case all but wrote off her disappearance and labeled her as nothing more than a troubled teen and a runaway. On that same Grateful Doe post, I read that according to Margaret's family, the police were planning on dropping Margaret's case completely once she turned 18. Wow. Of course, this is all from a Reddit community, and I couldn't find the specific source where they got this information, so take it with a grain of salt. But I wanted to tell you about it because this happens so often and it's not fair, to treat runaways' cases as not important.
1: Right. It's very unfortunate that this happens. So, the police were really focused on the fact that she was from Massachusetts. Was she actually from Massachusetts?
0: In a somewhat surprising turn of events that seemed to fly in the face of literally all the evidence and theories police had thus far, Margaret was not from Massachusetts. Huh. She had lived in Alexandria, Virginia before her death. She had attended Hayfield Secondary School in Alexandria, and police went to Alexandria to try to find people that may have gone to school with her or known her in order to piece together the circumstances of her disappearance. But so far, they haven't found anyone that knew her outside of her family. Even though Margaret lived in Virginia, her body had been found just 50 miles away in Woodlawn, Maryland. However, I do think it's likely that she spent some time in Massachusetts, specifically around the Boston area, whether that was by her choice, if she did run away, or whether she was forced into Massachusetts after encountering her killer.
1: Okay, so Margaret's been identified. Are there any suspects for her murder? Has anyone been convicted? Anything like
0: that? Any leads? Unfortunately, Margaret's murderer has never been caught there also aren't any suspects in margaret's case i dug through so many reddit threads and facebook pages to see if anyone in the comments had thrown out any theories or ideas about margaret's murderer but no one had anything so then i started researching serial killers who were operating in the area around the time that margaret was killed there were a few serial killers operating in the baltimore area around this time but after digging into their crimes I really don't think any of them are responsible because the victim profiles or the MOs just don't match. And I'm not even going to bother listing their names because they're not related to this case, so I'm not giving them any more attention. Even though we don't have any suspects for Margaret's murder, we do have that semen sample that I mentioned earlier. The sample was detected and tested in 2006, but it didn't give any positive matches. At the time of this recording, 2006 was 17 years ago. Technology, especially forensic technology, has advanced in amazing ways. Advanced technology is the reason why Margaret was able to be identified, and I think it will also be the reason that her murderer is caught. I think we need to retest all of the evidence in this case, including the semen sample, especially that sample. This was such a violent crime that I have a hard time believing that this man isn't in some sort of system somewhere that, or maybe he's dead already. But if that's the case, maybe we can still use genetic genealogy to get to him.
1: Absolutely, and genetic genealogy is something that can definitely be used in this case. I believe right now, as of the time that it's recording, the laws allow genetic genealogy to be used for suspects of murders and violent assaults like this.
0: Overall, finding Margaret's identity was a huge success, and it just goes to show that these cases we share with you every week are solvable. But Margaret's killer is still out there, and until he is caught and charged with this crime, Margaret's case will never really be closed. If you know anything about the murder of Margaret Federoff or the disappearance of Mia Ahiris, please contact the authorities. Their contact information will be on our website as usual.
1: And by the time you're listening to this, our first Miniature Dough episode has been dropped on our Patreon. So if you want another episode and you just can't wait till next week, it's waiting for you
0: right now on Patreon along with another
1: full-length episode. Also, we wanted to give a
0: shout out to the Season of Justice nonprofit. October is National Crime Prevention Month, and because of this, the Season of Justice is raising awareness about how we, as true crime consumers, can take action to support the families and the investigative agencies that are fighting for these cold cases to be solved.
1: On October 1st they're doing a special day of giving. They have a goal of receiving $5,000 in donations that day. This would be enough to fully fund an awareness campaign for a family that has lost a loved one but not received closure.
0: If you can, please consider donating, and if you can't, share the fundraiser with friends and family, or visit the Season of Justice website to learn more about their cause and how you can get involved. As always, thank you for listening to our episode, and we'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was researched and written by Madden Delaney.
1: All editing and music was done by Zoe Reese.